Cool. So this is our first time doing a podcast, the two of us. I think you should introduce yourself. Yeah, it is. I think you should introduce yourself. I've been on the podcast before. Where have I, you been? I, I've been on the podcast. It's been a while. Uh, been yeah, I guess that's true. But what, like once? So I am David Halpern. I'm the executive director. And you are? I am Michael Coplow. I'm the policy director. All right. Very good. So yesterday, uh, there was a New York Times Daily podcast. Michael, do you listen to the Daily every morning in the shower? I listen to, I listen to the Daily almost every single day when I run. Right. And... Yesterday, you open and you see that it's about uh, – I, I should say that we are about to have a podcast about a podcast. And so if you do not listen to The Daily and you did not listen yesterday to The Daily's podcast on Democrats in Israel, you should probably pause this podcast and go listen to that. Uh, otherwise, you might be pretty lost, right? Right. It was, it was, about, it was about like a 35-minute, 36-minute long podcast. Right. So go, so go listen to that and then come back. Right. So I I, uh, I did not listen to it as I usually do in the mornings, um, but I got into the office and I and I pull up Twitter as I need to try to observe Twitter, even though I'm I'm really bad at Twitter as as you know and as I like to say, You're uh, getting I'm I'm getting better. I'm getting. I'm trying. I'm trying. Um, but I pull up Twitter and I see uh, like furious debates going on between our various friends and colleagues in the Jewish community on on whether the podcast got got things right, uh, and it was thoughtful versus those who just said adamantly that it was completely wrong. So immediately I, I send you a, a Slack note, and I said, did, did you listen? Uh, and then you did. And so then I said, we should talk about it. And here we are. Yeah, right. Okay. So uh, I have a feeling that, that my feelings on the Daily Podcast from yesterday are stronger than yours. So... Um, before I go on a rant, what did you think of it? <laughs> what did I think of it? So I, I, I think that, you know, I, I, I listened to it again this morning, right? So because yesterday I'm listening to The Office with without the, the same sort of attentiveness. Um, you know, there's a lot of things I found to be really, really sloppy. And I, I don't know if that's because, listen, they have 30 minutes to, like, tell the entire story of U.S.-Israel relations and the diaspora relationship uh, you know, Israel-American-Jewish uh, relationship and as it relates to politics and looks, and it's, it's hard, right? And at the same time, like, you know, the New York Times writes anything on Israel and it's going to hear it, right? Everyone is going to nitpick about everything. Having said that, there are some things that I found to be particularly egregious, and I'm sure we'll get to those in a minute. But I want to first ask if you thought they got anything right at all. Like, was there anything in there that you like that that told a story that that you think is important or that resonates or, or did it get anything right in your view? So to the extent that the podcast was a broad story about Israel being a bipartisan cause for a long time with uh, lots of support from Republicans and Democrats and that in the last decade, something has shifted and that it is now an emerging wedge issue for Democrats and that there seems to be some conflict between the progressive grassroots and elected Democratic officials, then yes, I would say they got that overall framework correct from a, a 30,000 foot viewpoint. That's about it. Um, once Once you start diving into the details and you know, this was an, actually an unusually long podcast for the Daily. They're usually shorter than this. It's so, true. It's true. So, I noticed that as well. Yeah. 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 So this was this was you know uh, an unusually detailed podcast. 
that also seemed like it was, uh, for much of it, more reporting, right? Like laying out facts right. uh, as opposed to analysis, which made it you know, even more detailed. I would say that they got almost all of the, the details of everything not only wrong, but wrong in such an egregious way that that if you don't know this issue well, it's going to leave people with a complete misimpression about what's going on and how we got here and why American Jews behave the way they do and why Israelis behave the way they do. Okay, uh, so, so I tend to ag- agree, but, you know, the devil is in the details, right? So what are some of those details that you think were especially egregious that the casual observer is, is – is, is now missing uh, because they only listen to the daily and not this podcast. Okay, so so to begin with, there's this idea in, in, in the podcast they mention um, that somehow the centrality of Israel and American Jewish identity was, if not created, driven by, by American Jewish groups and AJC, right, right. who all of a sudden in the 1970s and 80s, you know, decided that Israel should be important. And so American Jews, you know, in, 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 the, in the New York Times telling, American Jews were sort of ambivalent about Israel. Maybe some of them cared, maybe some of them didn't. And all of a sudden, a bunch of organizations decided that Israel is important. And therefore, Israel became central to American Jewish identity. Yeah, as I remember, it was like... Uh uh, APAC and, and AJC were AJC. named, were named ex- explicitly and that as a result, uh, Israeli flags started popping up in synagogues. And I thought to, right, my, exactly. I thought to myself, wow, APAC and AJC could have really fundraised off their success <laughs> in getting the entire American Jewish community to be support. Yeah, that, I agree. That right. was totally like out of the blue. Yeah. Right. It's bizarre. I mean, when you, when you think about Israel and American Jewish identity, you know, Israel is so baked into it from the founding of the state that, you know, we're at the point now where – the to the extent that there's a crisis brewing about how American Jews feel about Israel, it is actually a crisis about American Jewish identity too because Israel is so central. But it's been that way from the beginning. Right. It isn't this you know created idea that a, con- a bunch of organizations came up with, and all of a sudden you know convinced American Jews that they need to care about Israel. I mean you know forget about the flags you know and the signs we stand with Israel out front of American synagogues. I, I don't know that there's any American synagogue outside of like two or three explicitly anti-Zionist ones that you can walk into where there isn't an Israeli flag up on the bima or where they don't recite the prayer for the Israeli government or the prayer for the IDF. Right. Um, you know, or where particularly in, in non-Orthodox denominations where rabbis on high holidays don't speak about Israel as, as their central sermon. And this isn't something that only started because APAC and AJC in the 1980s decided it was important. Um, I mean, you know, the only the only way that somebody could come up with that is if it was somebody who is either not at all familiar with the American Jewish community because they themselves are not Jewish or if it's somebody who was so unaffiliated and and disengaged with the American Jewish community and was entirely ambivalent about an American Jewish identity and kind of discovered it recently and, and now thinks that they, you know, have, have unlocked some sort of secret. Um, you know, that's not to say that there aren't American Jews who are non-Zionist or anti-Zionist, because there are. Right. But, it, it, also idea, sort of, it also sort of fits this, like, all-powerful APAC narrative that sort of right. – that goes throughout this podcast. But besides right. – you, know, you talk about – right, Ilhan Omar wants to tweet about uh, Israel hypnotizing the world. I mean, this is basically this this – 
bizarre idea that that APAC and AJC have hypnotized American right. Jews to care about Israel when they didn't before. Right. So I agree that was that was totally bizarre and that, that caught my eye as well. But there was another thing that caught my eye, which I'm curious if it caught yours as well, is the the, the way it described um, the shifts, the turning points of. Uh, the discussion on Israel and American politics. They chose some, to me, like bizarre uh, uh, inflection points or the, these bizarre turning points. That, like, for example, like the political shifts in the conversation on Israel begins in '73. <laughs> but but not sixty seven right or right. that or that three years later the Entebbe raid they described as a seminal moment in the American political uh, 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 dialogue about Israel the Entebbe raid like where right. they, it was kind of <laughs> you know yeah it, it's so, kind of, it seems like cherry picking history to decide I mean there's a lot of you know I'm, I'm curious what you you thought about that yeah that so that also incredibly odd right if you're talking right. about American Jewish attitudes or even American attitudes writ large, because I think in that section they were actually talking about American American political attitudes, not necessarily American Jews. Right. Right. So sixty seven is obviously a big one. Um, that they just, they just sort of like washed over. Yeah. Right. Washed over. They didn't. Even they didn't even it. mention it. Right. 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 They didn't mention it. Right. Right. Um, and then when you're talking about uh, kind of a, a shift, a shift away from Israel, from from liberal American Jews and from American liberals more generally. Most people would point to 1977 when Menachem Begin and Likud were elected for the first time, and you find you had a right-wing government in Israel for the very first time, right? People start to point to that also as something that started to maybe, uh, you know, pop pop the balloon. But pointing to the Yom Kippur War, and then, you know, and I'll talk about that in a minute, because that is important, but not in the way they talk about it. And then the raid on Antebi, which I've got to be honest, it's the first time I've ever read or heard anybody pointing to the raid on Entebbe as shifting American attitudes on anything. Um, I mean, like, yeah, right. it was it was cool, but, <laughs> but right, right. like, right. really? I right, mean, right. It made, that, that it, it made for a couple right. movies, but, like, so did the Munich Olympics. They didn't talk about that. So they point to the 17th Yom Kippur War as shifting American attitudes, I think particularly in the Republican Party, right? Because it's part of the story they're trying to tell about Democrats being strong on Israel, but Republicans having more of a realpolitik view, right? And they talk about the Yom Kippur War as shifting American attitudes based on sort of almost values, right? This idea that Republicans look at the Yom Kippur War and say, oh, hey, you know, it's a, it's a small, embattled country that has a good military, and we, and we admire that. The Yom Kippur War is important to Republicans, but not because of that. It's because the Yom Kippur War was seen as as a complete Cold War proxy battle where the Soviets were backing one side. And so the Nixon administration jumped in to massively fund Israel. It was the first time that, that massive amounts of military aid went to Israel from the United States. Right. And it wasn't because of like a, a, a values type admiration. Right. Remember back then, Israel is still a, a socialist country with plenty of ties to socialism and communism and the Soviet Union. I mean, you know, Nixon was was kind of suspicious of Israel for that reason. This wasn't a values thing. It was literally a Cold War proxy battle yeah. where the Soviets were backing the Arabs. Nixon was going to back the Israelis. And that's what shifted in the Republican Party because of the Yom Kippur War. It's not anything having to do with, you know, some sort of admiration or values based on uh, based on, you know, the the image of Israel. Right. Uh, that's important to to why Americans support Israel generally. But when you're talking about Republican Party institutional support and kind of the Nixonian and Kissingerian, Kissingerian views of Israel, it's Cold War stuff. It's not, it's not values. Right. So 
Um, the other thing that was like agree, you know, like obviously missing from this story was besides '67 is, um, you know, the whole era of peace talks and violence is sort of conflated into a two-minute uh, sort of soundbite that uh, then is concluded by saying that what really happens to change the story is the rise of the Israeli right on the domestic scene inside Israel um, without any like explanation of why that took place. In fact, while I was listening to it a second time, I couldn't tell initially if they were talking about the violence of throwing rocks, if they were referring to the first intifada in the late 1980s, <laughs> or they were referring to the second intifada in the early 2000s because they, they refer, they, they, they go, they, there's nothing about the Gaza disengagement, right? There's nothing about uh, uh, the, the collapse of, of negotiations at Camp David. Um, there is some like, you know, sound bites of Rabin and Perez, which, you know, again, if you're not familiar intimately with this story, as I'm sure, you know, not all New York Times obser observers recognize Shimon Perez's voice and so forth. Um, you know, you're, you're missing a huge part of the story. And to me, that was like probably the biggest, right? You, you heard the sound of explosions and then suddenly, suddenly Israel's attacking Gaza, right? It, it, <laughs> right. It's like, it's like, you know, just one thing from the, the you know, it basically took what, 15 to 20 years into like a two-minute soundbite, right? Not only 15 to 20 years into a two-minute soundbite, a two-minute soundbite that, that isn't even a correct one. Right. right. Um, this was actually the point where I almost turned it off because <laughs> because I was like, I, I just thought if, if they get this so wrong, then why, why, am I even, why am I even bothering? I mean, it's just going to make me angrier. So, right. you know, you, know, you point out the, the thing about the Palestinians throwing rocks, right? So first of all, the words, the phrase second intifada isn't even mentioned anywhere in this podcast, right? right, right. And yes, what, what they are describing, which one has to assume based on their timeline is the second intifada, is described as Palestinian youths throwing rocks. Now, if, if, you, if you know even just one thing about Israeli politics, if there's sort of one takeaway that even the most casual observer should have about the last quarter century, it is that the most important thing in all of Israeli politics, the thing that shapes Israeli politics and policy today is the second intifada, and it wasn't a bunch of Palestinian youth throwing rocks. Right. It was horrible suicide bombings inside of Israeli towns and cities, and hundreds of Israelis dying in terrorist attacks. So, right. you know, that's that, that's a second. Right to describe the, the the you know the thing they say the thing that changed in the early two thousand right. is the rise right. of the Israeli right, as if it's sort of like some organic uh... right. <laughs> you know, first of all, the right, right. Israeli politics, you know, as we mentioned before, happened in 1977. Okay, we're we're basically now right in in, in four uninterrupted decades, with very two short exceptions. One is Yitzhak Rabin, and the other is Ehud Barak. Right. Otherwise, we're we're in the middle of over 40 years now of yeah, it's been like interrupted. Right, it's been right like five years government. within the last 40 have been right. non, non so, yeah. You know, yeah. Right word shift in Israeli politics in the early 2000s. I mean, I, you know, what do these guys think Yitzhak Shamir was? Right, um, let alone you know, big, right. Not only that, describe it as a right word shift is strange because, yes, when we think of Sharon, obviously we think of a right winger, but his shift when he was prime minister was from... <laughs> From the right to the center, right. You know, supporter of, of settlements and, right. and right. most strident combater of terrorism to the Gaza disengagement and realizing that actually Israel itself had to shift something if it wanted to deal with Palestinian terrorism and its security problem. So to describe that period in particular 
as a rightward shift in Israeli politics. Right. You, you, I just, you know, I, I don't even know what to do with it. Right. Exactly. Uh, and you had the you had the the real mainstreaming of the discourse around a two state solution, where you even had. Uh, uh, again, folks from the right moving to the center and the kind of big bang of, of Israeli politics. None of, none of that is described, I agree. Um, uh, not to mention, you know, there's there's really nothing on the Palestinian side at all, right? We don't, you don't hear, right. like, there's, there's, there's really no analysis whatsoever on what's happening on the other side. Uh, with with Hamas, with Hamas takeover of Gaza and all etc. Yeah. Even before that, right? With like right. Hamas's creation and, and its rise, or you right. know Arafat's shift from PLO to PA, or you know Arafat dying and things going to Abbas. I mean, yeah. just not a word. Thing. Yeah. I, I, I get I get that in a in a thirty five minute podcast, there's only so much ground you can cover. But but I mean, this just it, it literally misses. The, the main points and posits this like bizarre alternative narrative that anybody who pays any attention to Israel wouldn't even recognize. Right. So then it ends on this sort of the, the note where we began with this divide that's now, um, uh, as they describe, as kind of a wave where the democratic grassroots are not consistent with the democratic uh, uh, policymakers on the Hill and it strikes me that the story that they seem to be coming back to repeatedly is that criticism of Israel is now anti-Semitism, right? It seems right. to be like that they're acknowledging that that is now the reality, which I, 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 I think, you know, obviously the Ilhan Omar episode of, of whatever a couple weeks ago uh, was uh, a notable one, but like to suggest that the new normal and, and I mean, we, did you read it that way? That's the way I read it. That they were essentially suggesting that it's like it's now commonplace to think that any criticism of Israel is anti-Semitic. anti-Semitic. Yeah. So um, I, I think that that's that's one thing they were doing, which was wrong. Which you know we can we can delve into a little more deeply. Um, and the other thing that I think that they did, which was wrong, which was another kind of main framing of this, was this notion that Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib are representative uh, right, right, of voices that are critical of Israel. And I don't think that's right either. Right. Um, you know, so to the to the first point. And by the way, you know, we, we haven't even talked about and, you know, to, for the for the purposes of not making this podcast go on forever. You know, we, we, didn't, we didn't even talk about their characterization of Netanyahu breaking with Obama at the Iran deal, as if as if he hadn't broken with him <laughs> before that. Um, but let's set that aside for a minute. Yeah. So, right, you know, as, as you say, they paint this as, you know, anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism from kind of the, the reverse position, right? That that any, any criticism of Israel is now going to be viewed as anti-Semitic. And, you know, that's uh, there's just there's no there's no evidence for that. I mean, they they talk about Bernie Sanders in 2016 as, you know, really sort of flipping the script and um, demonstrating a new way to talk about Israel and being critical. And, and he he did all that 100 um, percent. But nobody, you know, aside from fringe fringe people, nobody is describing Bernie Sanders as anti-Semitic. Right. right. People describe him as anti-Israel. Now, I don't think that's I don't think that's accurate either. Um, but, you know, people will describe him as anti-Israel, but not as an anti-Semite. So the idea that, you know, anybody who is critical of Israel is immediately tarred with the anti-Semitism brush is not correct. The reason that Ilhan Omar 
is being tarred with the anti-Semitism brush is because she has been tweeting out blatantly anti-Semitic tropes, right? That's that's not criticism of Israel, right? Saying in 2012, had she tweeted, uh, you know, Israel is Israel is, is using excessive force in Gaza. Uh, we need to mobilize people to get Israel to stop its assault on Palestinians. That would be characterized as criticism of Israel. It wouldn't be characterized as anti-Semitic because when you tweet that Israel has hypnotized the world using this trope that people have used about Jews you know, with supernatural powers hypnotizing the, the Gentiles for centuries, that's why it's anti-Semitic. And right. when you talk about the fact that, that elected officials support Israel for the only reason of Jewish money, which is when you say it's all about the Benjamins, um, that's anti-Semitic, as opposed to saying that APEC is incredibly powerful and that that is one factor of many for why politicians support Israel. If you want to talk about APEC's power, of course it's a powerful organization. But, you know, that's that that's very different from what she said. And, you know, acting as if the stuff that she tweeted is, is somehow not related to anti-Semitism at all and is just being used by the pro-Israel community uh, to, to tar a critic of Israel uh, is is just it's it's nonsense and it's offensive. And on top of that, Ilhan Omar herself has now acknowledged that both of those tweets dealt in anti-Semitic tropes, and she has apologized for both of them. So you know you now have this strange spectacle of the the person who who actually tweeted the anti-Semitic stuff acknowledging it and apologizing for it, and you have people rushing to defend her. As oh no, she she did nothing wrong. Nothing she did was anti-Semitic. Well, you know, <laughs> if that's the way that, that Weissman wants to wants to portray it, fine for him. But I don't think I don't think it has any relation to reality. Right, and you're referring to Jonathan Weissman, the Washington editor, deputy Washington editor of the Times, who's on the uh, on the New York Times podcast. But you know, that brings me back to kind of the one thing that I, I think we acknowledged at the outset that they did get right, which is that um, on the Hill we now see this growing. Uh, politicization of Israel and this Ilhan Omar episode and the larger issues of BDS, which are referenced in the podcast, and Republicans certainly see an opportunity. Um, and we're living in a moment in Washington politics where it's not obviously not just Israel, everything is politicized. And now uh, Israel, which had once been, uh, I think, correctly identified as a bipartisan issue, remains largely a bipartisan issue, as you, as I think you've, you've pointed out, that uh, Tlaib and uh, um, Omar are, are just two Democrats that are clearly on the fringe of the Democratic Party. Um, but clearly uh, there is a growing sense of polarization in Washington and political opportunity that Republicans are seeking to exploit, which I do think they, they, they got right. Uh, do you agree with that? Yeah, I, I agree they, they got that right. There's no question Republicans are, have been seeking to exploit it. Uh, there's no question that there is – I don't know that I would call it a, a crisis in the, the Democratic Party, right. uh, which is how they describe it. Right. But there's no question that, that you know there is a lot more angst about uh, Israel and, and Israel issues and a division between grassroots Democrats and elected officials. Um, but, I mean, I'm, I'm curious, you know, they, 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 they paint Omar and Slaib as – representative of these new voices that are critical of Israel. And, you know, they, they, they put them kind of in the same box as, as Bernie Sanders, as if, you know, this is all lumped together. I mean, you know, what's, what's, what's your view of that? Do you think that, do you think that Omar and Slaib 
are, you know, as I think Stolberg described it, the, you know, the, the, uh, the, the crest of a new wave on, right. on Israel? Do you, do you view them as, as kind of heralding what's to come in 10 years? Uh, do I? I, yeah. I, I think, uh, no, I, I don't. I think that the core of the United States support for Israel, you know, going back to this whole issue to begin with, um, it's it's not because of APEC or its money. It's because APEC is pushing on an open door, right? That there's already uh, an affinity for Israel. Having said that, I'm deeply concerned about uh, the direction of the Israeli, uh, uh, the potential direction of Israeli government policies um, that would be deeply, deeply undermining uh, any prospect for two states um, and further aligning the Israeli government uh, with only one side of the political aisle, which, yes, could lead to a deepening um, split among Democrats. I think that's I think that's right, especially um uh, in the grassroots. Having said that, at the moment, this is on the fringes. And I I, I think uh, a lot depends on what happens in the years to come. Um, am I wrong in that? I'm curious. What no, you're think. not. But I, but, I, but I think the question is, does a deepening split mean that you have one side of the Democratic Party that, you know, let's, let's call them Chuck Schumer Democrats, right? Um, <laughs> you know, they're right. traditional kind of you know, very comfortable, very comfortable in, in the APAC camp. And, um, yeah, and the New York Times, uh, New York Times cited his speech. Prime Minister of the government, yeah. right? Right. Um, and then, you know, one camp, and again, we're, we're talking about kind of members of Congress now, but let's say is in the Bernie Sanders camp, right? Which is, let's call it, you know, for shorthand, the J Street camp, um, right? Far more comfortable with criticizing uh, the Israeli government uh, and, and, and pushing the Israeli government to, to take certain actions. Right. And I think I mean, that's that's how I think probably, you know, the, the split is going to emerge. Or is it going to be the way they characterize it on the daily, which is one side is, you know, in lockstep with APAC and the Israeli government. And the other side, as represented by Omar and Slaib, are BDSers. Right. right. Because that's how that that's how they portray the the future split. Right. Omar and Slaib as being representative of what we're going to see from members of Congress, and I just don't see that happening. I don't see that happening either. But I, I think, uh, uh, I think much depends on what's going to happen in the in, in regional dynamics, right? Um, I, you know, I, I can't help but you know, as we're as we're having this podcast, seeing the the news reports about Netanyahu encouraging uh, Kahanist elements to unite and, and being offered government portfolios. I mean, I think, you know, as the perception of the Israeli government moves further and further and further to the right, there's going to be a growing appeal uh, at the grassroots. Uh, it's going to be more difficult for Israel advocates, uh, including Israel Policy Forum, the organization that we're, we're leading here, um, to make an impassioned case uh, of this uh, – uh, 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 of 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 the current uh, uh, U.S. Israel relationship, I think it's going to continue to be challenged, and it's going to continue to be politicized as a result. Um, you know, for sure, I agree. I I, I agree with all that a hundred percent. But Israel is always going to be a valuable military and intelligence ally, and it's always going to have it's always going to have a significant segment of the American Jewish community, the evangelical community foreign policy hawks who support a strong relationship with it. And so, you know, the idea that that BDS is going to take over the Democratic Party, I, I don't think I just I, I don't think that for uh, for 
elected officials right. that is ever going to be you know a significant proportion of anybody right. but i agree for sure on the grassroots and all, all those things you point out right whether you know whether it's it's the various annexation plans that are that are being floated that uh, as anybody who pays attention to our work knows are are dangerously close to becoming reality to as you point out the fact that uh, otsmali israel which is a kahanist party um you know made up of people who are literally uh, members of banned terrorist organizations that now looks like it will enter the Knesset because Prime Minister Netanyahu uh, just today encouraged them to merge with other small right-wing parties and uh, you know was even offering the larger bloc uh, a seat on the Likud list, which is crazy. Um, yeah, right. that kind of stuff is going to drive lots of people away. Um, right. That kind of stuff makes me, you know, not only deeply uncomfortable but but angry. Um, so yeah, it's it's going to piss off lots of people, rightly so. Um, so but we again, need, we, right, the question is whether Omar and Slaib, you know, are are the sea change as opposed to, you know, are, are they the canaries in the coal mine or or are, you know, they two people out on the fringes who are going to grow their group a little bit. But they're always going to be on the fringes. And, you know, I think they're always going to be on the fringes. Whereas if you listen to the daily podcast yesterday and, and that's all you know about Israel and Democrats, you would come away thinking that, you know, Omar and Slaib are are going to be the faces of the party 10 years from now. Right. Um, okay. So we are now almost at our 30 minute mark and we're going to rival whether, uh, our podcast is about a podcast is actually longer than the original podcast. <laughs> so I think, uh, so my first question is, is there anything we missed out? We missed that we did, that we didn't uh, talk about on, uh, 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 on, on the podcast, uh, that was. I mean, I'm sure I can come up with a whole bunch of other things. I know, things me, me too. I, I know, me too. I, I, I have like a whole laundry list of things we're not touching, yeah. but I think we're, we're reaching our time. So I'm going to ask you one question, which is the question I like to, to ask you on Wednesday at uh, whatever it is, oh, 10, 10 a.m., which is what are you writing about for tomorrow? Oh, that's actually not the question I thought you were going to ask me. Oh, really? Uh, oh, oh, I know. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and also, have you started writing a book yet? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I'll, I'll leave that second question to the side for now. Um, <laughs> on the first question... Uh, I think I'm going to write about um, Tzipi Livni, who uh, who announced this week that she is leaving Israeli politics because she was polling below 1% and really had no chance of making the Knesset. Uh, I think I'm going to write about um, what what her uh, what her leaving politics represents in terms of the larger uh, Israeli political system. Uh, and, and given what happened today with uh, Otsmali Israel, I think, I think there's probably actually uh, a good con contrast to be made um, in terms of what what she and her career uh, represents in terms of um, Israeli political shifts and how that contrasts to what we're seeing today with Osmali Israel. So that's uh, I haven't written it yet, but but that's what I'm that's what I'm leaning towards. Ah, you just admitted that at 10 a.m. on a Wednesday, you haven't written it yet. And you're like still formulating your idea, which is either really scary that you put it off to the last moment or very impressive that you're able to turn these things around so quickly and, and that they're, they're really, really good. So last I, moment. I, we're not, we're not, we're not, we're not sending it out for another 24 hours. This isn't last <laughs> moment at all. Okay. Right, right. <laughs> I, I've, I've seen this guy for those listening, write Columns like in minutes and it's, uh, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty crazy. Uh, impressive stuff. Um, Okay. Anything else we're missing, or I think, we, do we sign off and 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 start our day? Well, I think before we sign off, we should, you know, since we just did a podcast about a podcast, I would encourage anybody who's listening to us to do a podcast about our podcast about a podcast. Oh my god, that's a great idea. <laughs>